Well, good morning. It's so good to be with you uh, again this morning and to get to open up uh, God's Word one more time. I want to invite you to open to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. 1 Corinthians 2, verses 1 through 5. And I'll, I'll remind you, if you were here last night, uh, of the kind of order we've been following and bring you up to speed if you weren't able to be here last night on what we've been doing. We're thinking about a growing... Uh, to be heralds of the gospel, to be proclaimers of the gospel. Some of us uh, in the pulpit, uh, most of us over the kitchen table or at the coffee shop, but we're all called to be proclaimers of the gospel. And so we started uh, yesterday very, very logically with what, what is the gospel and, and what, what is it about the gospel that would make us eager and unashamed uh, to share it. And so we've been thinking about the eagerness and the shame-free attitude that God gives us uh, to share the gospel. And then we uh, moved from there and, and just said we really need to come to terms with the fact that we are unapologetically conversionists. We are aiming to see a conversion, to see people change from one center and core of their being uh, to another, and namely the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, th this morning, uh, we're going to move from thinking about the gospel, though we'll keep doing that, as you'll see, uh, and, and from thinking about conversion to thinking even a little more clearly about what is the means, what is the way that God grows His people, and what is the way that God brings people to Himself, and the answer to that is preaching. It is the preaching of God's Word that uh, leads men and women to initial faith in Christ, and it is the preaching of God's Word that leads men and women to continuing uh, faith in Christ. Now, uh, J.I. Packer said many years ago that Christianity stands or falls with preaching. And I have a little bit of a love-hate relationship with that quote. Hate might be a bit strong, but I have a bit of a love-dislike relationship with that quote. At one level, I 100% agree with it. Christianity does indeed stand or fall with preaching. Uh, when preaching is eroded, when preaching is uh, less than biblical, uh, when preaching distorts the gospel, uh, uh, literally people are not saved. Uh, the Apostle Paul tells Timothy to watch yourself and your doctrine. By this you will save both yourself and your hearers. And the implication is that if you don't watch your life, and your doctrine, then the people following you will not be saved. And so really everything in the church does indeed stand or fall with preaching. And then what I don't like about that quote is that it could communicate that preaching is sort of the main thing. Preachers are kind of on the inside track. Sort of this church Gnosticism where the real high level spirituality is reserved for preachers. And uh, that seems like a terrible thing, since in a church of a hundred, only one person's usually the preacher. Church of a thousand, maybe only one person's the preacher. Doesn't really seem, you know, it seems like only one person really gets to uh, play the best sport. And and that is not the idea the Word of God would give us at all. The idea that the Word of God would give us is that the preaching is strengthening all of us for our lives and for our proclamation in the various places God has called us to. Uh, to in, in every uh, church, there's always a, a group of young men who have it in their mind that they'll really be spiritual if they become preachers. And they're usually exactly who you don't want to see uh, become preachers. And, uh, and, and part of the problem there is a failure to realize that the front lines of Christian ministry is really the mom, the dad, the worker, the boss, the, the son, the daughter. The, the, the Christians taking up their place in the vocations that God has given them, but what do they need to keep those vocations? They need to be equipped by preaching. It's the preaching of God's Word that lets the saint of God hear the Word of God, hear from their God, and be enthralled by their God, and then really live all of life before the face of God. So I want to think with you about preaching, but I'm aware that I'm speaking to many who will never preach. 
And so I want to make sure that it's clear uh, just exactly where preaching fits in. We ought to equip better preachers, but the goal of better preachers is really better Christians and really Christians who enjoy walking with their God. Uh, I, I say this, I've got to cut this shorter, I'm going to be up here all day, and then Clint really will be glad he took his place on that front row. But anyway, uh, I have this uh, a pet peeve that I tell our pastoral apprentices at Emmanuel all the time, and uh, pe- people will say this, they'll say this, they'll say, I like a man who can preach, it's good when a guy can preach, but what I really want to know is, will he serve? And, and, of course, what's implied in that is I like it when a guy preaches, but will he clean the toilets? Will he, will he attend the church work day? And I'll just tell you, I've attended a lot of church work days. I've cleaned church toilets. I'm not against it. I still hate that comment. Why? Because preaching is service. Preaching rightly regarded as service. It doesn't become service once you clean the toilets too. The preaching is the washing of the feet of the saints of God. The preaching is serving those who need their thoughts taken captive to authority, the authority of Christ. And so we want to think about preaching first as it equips preachers to do it well, but also recognizing that the whole life of the church and the body is dependent on that preaching. Let me read to you this marvelous passage on the power and the focus that was evident in the Apostle Paul's preaching. And uh, you might even want to ask yourself as you read this passage, have I ever heard preaching like this? And if I have, uh, then to return thanks to God that you have heard preaching uh, like Paul describes true preaching to be. He says in 1 Corinthians 2, verses 1-5, through And when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my message My speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom of men, in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. I'm sorry, I got messed up. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of message, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith may not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Lord, uh, we are too weak even to read your text rightly, let alone to preach in your power we ask you lord god that in our weakness you would be pleased to have christ rest upon us and even to add the testimony of your spirit's demonstration to the word pray this in jesus name amen well i have two goals in this message and the first is simply to do an expository sermon to preach one to preach a sermon that aims to expose the passage. That's the kind of ministry we want to see. That's the kind of preaching that uh, feeds God's people is simply preaching that says, here's what God has said. Now I want to say it back to you in a way you can understand. And the reason that's the most powerful kind of preaching is because of what God's Word is. God's Word is His creative force and action in the world. If God were to choose, how am I going to make a sun today or a moon or a Europe or, a, or an ocean? He would do it by His Word. And His Word is how He does His most important Word. It's how He exerts the force and the power to change things and to make things. And so preaching that says, God has spoken, let me say that, is acknowledging and aware of just how powerful God's Word is. And so I want to preach a message that I hope would be not not perfect or even great, but something to follow in terms of like, yes, that's what we ought to do is take a passage of Scripture and explain it. Expose what's already there. And my second goal, my first goal is to preach an expository message. My second goal is to preach on the Holy Spirit 
in connection with our preaching. I have been privileged in my lifetime, and I think many of you have been privileged in your lifetime, uh, to live amidst a time where there's been a rediscovery of expository preaching. In fact, uh, we just have, uh, as, uh, as Westerners uh, in, a, in a modern world, and really this would be all over the world at this point, just an embarrassment of riches on our, on our phones, on our computers, on our radios, of men who will open the text and explain what it says faithfully. I think that's just a wonderful gift, and we should thank God that of all the many things that are wrong in the world, we are not currently enduring a famine for hearing the Word of God if you know where to look and if you, and if you, if you, uh, if you know where to seek it. Now, I know many churches don't preach a good word, but that, those words are out there in the world, and that's a marvelous, marvelous gift. Having said that, while there, there are many who will preach what the text says and explain what the text says, and there's been even a resurgence of commitment to that, there hasn't been, in my estimation, the same appreciation for the Spirit's power in preaching. There hasn't been the same <coughs> appreciation. I have a bottle of water in, the, in, the, uh, <coughs> in my coat there, Clint, sorry. Thank you so much. little more preached a wedding recently got to my last paragraph in the wedding my voice was gone so I said well, I guess that's all I have to say and I moved on from there <clears throat> hopefully that won't be the case today we have not seen a similar emphasis on the power that ought to be present in preaching. The power that's in preaching, or that ought to be in biblical preaching, is not something you take by faith. Was it a powerful sermon? Well, I trust it was. Even though it didn't seem powerful or helpful, I just trust it was. We take it by faith. Listen to the way the Apostle Paul describes his preaching in verse 4. And my speech and message were not in plausible words of men wisdom, but in a demonstration of the Spirit and of power. There was a visible power, an experiential power, communicated as Paul preached the Word. If you stick your finger in an electric socket, you don't take it on faith that you have been electrocuted. Right? Were you electrocuted? I trust I was. No, you know it because you felt the power. You felt the energy transferred into your body. And uh, what's happening here is that the Apostle Paul is giving us a, a glimpse into what it was like to listen to him preach. And so what I want to do again this morning is to think, is to do an expository sermon, just expose this text, but to think with you about the ministry of the Holy, Holy Spirit in our preaching. <clears throat> now, here's why I want to do this. Because without the kind of preaching with demonstrable power, your faith will wither. Your faith will wither. Unless you have regular encounters with God under the preaching of God's Word, your faith will wither. Do you see that in the text? Look at that in verse 5. Why did Paul preach with a demonstration of the Spirit and of power? Verse 5, that, for this purpose, for this reason, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. 
And what I want to do for a moment here is I want to just give you a little bit of the context of this passage we're looking at. Here's the Apostle Paul. He's trying to set out for them what his preaching ministry looked like. He's trying to remind them how he preached. He's telling them that when he preached, it wasn't just a relaying of facts. It wasn't just like, hey, there'll be a quiz and I hope you can get all the right answers. But there was an actual experiential power communicated as he preached. And he's telling them that he did this so they wouldn't rest in his wisdom but they would rest in God's power. And now we need just to back up for a second and think about what's happening in the book of 1 Corinthians. What's happening in the book of 1 Corinthians? Now, one of the strangest realities in church history, to my mind, is that churches actually name themselves 1 Corinthians Baptist Church or 1 Corinthians Pentecostal church, and you're like, what? Like, what board meeting led to that decision? And I just met someone recently. I passed her first Corinthians. I'm like, what? I mean, these, these people were going to prostitutes. The Lord's Supper was a mess. The, uh, the, 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 their practice of the spiritual gifts was a total gong show. They, they, they were an absolute mess. But here's what's interesting. This is so fascinating to me. You're the Apostle Paul, okay? Just pretend you're the Apostle Paul. And someone's just come to you from Chloe's house, and they've said, okay, listen, here's the problems going on in the church. They're denying the resurrection. Okay, well, that's bad. That, that would be worth its own letter. That's big. Uh, they're, they're not wearing head coverings as they should. Okay, that's, that's, that's apart from Christian tradition. Uh, they're, they're celebrating the Lord's Supper and some are getting drunk. Well, that's a big deal. I'm going to have to figure out how to deal with that one too. They're totally messing up the spiritual gifts. They're practicing tongues and prophecy but without any love. You're going to have to set that whole thing straight. They're suing each other. They're suing each other. Some are going to the prostitutes and they totally love the preaching of Apollos and Paul and Peter and they just have their favorite preachers who preach sound doctrine. What do you tackle first? I mean, I'm going for the prostitutes. Just honestly, I think if I'm writing it. What's shocking to me is that the Apostle Paul spends four chapters on the issue of having a favorite preacher and identifying with that favorite preacher. Isn't that crazy to you? They're getting drunk during the Lord's Supper and Paul's sitting there going, I'm of Paul Washer. I'm of John Piper. I'm of John MacArthur. And we're going to prostitutes. Whoa, what should I handle first, Paul? That whole preacher thing. That is so counterintuitive. That is so... We view the presence of that in our midst as one of our strengths. Paul viewed that as the first thing that needed to be dealt with. Why? Let me just... I haven't really established this from the text. But verse, chapter 1, verse 12. He says, What I mean is that each of you says, I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I follow Cephas. I follow Christ. If you go to chapter, chapter 3, verse 5, he's still on the same subject. Three chapters later. What is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollo watered, but God gave the growth. And if I had time, I could show you that he's still on this subject till the end of chapter 4. Now, I know I'm belaboring this point, but bear with me. The resurrection, one chapter. Drunk at the Lord's Supper, half a chapter. Going to prostitutes, a chapter, a half chapter. Something like that. Identifying primarily with your favorite preacher. Four chapters. You following me? Why? 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 What's going on in Paul's pastoral sensibilities that he thinks this is so important and we don't think it's anything? What's happening? Here's what's happening. Paul knows that when your soul begins to lean on the wisdom of your favorite preacher and not on the power of God, all the other problems are just details. And if you're going to fix all the other problems, the first problem that has to be dealt with 
is that your soul must be restored to a place of primary trust in God and not the wisdom of your favorite preacher. Are you seeing what I'm saying? I, 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 I get to be around a lot of young pastors because we, we're in a seminary town. And guys, I want to get in there and get elders in our churches. I want to get in there and get church discipline. I want to get in there and reform the churches. Great! But if you don't have a people who are primarily oriented towards faith in God, you're just moving chairs in the Titanic. You're just rearranging the furniture. You're missing the main thing, which is the main thing is that churches must be full of weak Christians just leaned over on Jesus. That's, that's it. And you can have all your healthy church trappings, but if you don't have broken, leaning, trusting, faith-filled Christians, you have nothing. And so Paul tells us what kind of a preaching ministry creates that. He tells us what kind of a preaching ministry will be used of God to make sure that your trust is not in the wisdom of men. Even Apollos. Even Paul. I don't even know how to say this. Even Christ, as a preacher at least, in some sense, in a sectarian way, he says that your faith must be in the wisdom, the power of God, not the wisdom of man. And then he goes on to say, and here's how I preached. So that that would happen in your lives. Here's how I preached so that that would happen in your lives. So let me show you how he preached. The first thing he says about his preaching is that it was more about God's story than Paul's smarts. It was more about God's story than than Paul's smarts. Look at verse 1. When I came to you, when I came to preach, just like I've come to preach, when I came to you, brothers, did not come to you proclaiming the testimony of God. I love that phrase. We do testimonies a fair bit at our church. People stand up and share what God has done in their life. It's often been the case in churches for Christians to stand up and share how God saved them. I love to hear people share their testimonies. I love even more the idea of God. Now, I can get up and say, here's how God saved me. God can get up and say, here's how I saved. I sent my son to die on the cross for sinners, and I sent my spirit to gather them to my son. But Paul says, when I preached the testimony of God, what God had done to save, I did not do it with lofty speech or wisdom. He intentionally adopted a plainer style. He intentionally preached so that you didn't go walk away going, now that guy can turn a phrase. That guy can tell a story. He he, he saw that if you put the focus on the quality of your language, it's like a rancid cherry on top of an ice cream sundae. It just ruins everything. Paul says, I did not come with lofty speech or wisdom. D.A. Carson tells the story of an Arabic preacher who preached in a very refined Arabic. And if you know anything about Islam, you know that one of the testimonies they believe proves the validity of the Quran is just the exalted Arabic it's written in. And this Christian preacher was preaching in this high and lofty Arabic, and he gathered a congregation of two thousand people and then he began to realize that the people were there because he was such a good speaker there is still an amazing just impulse in humanity just to listen to people who are good with words we like that he transitioned then when he realized this from a high arabic into a low street arabic It made his style much plainer. And the church lost 1,400 people and God really began to move. Now, I am not saying we shouldn't do our best to be clear. I'm not saying we shouldn't use our our best words to be clear and persuasive. But there is a difference between attracting people to the way you say it versus attracting people to what is being said. 
And Paul made it very clear that when he preached, he did not preach in a way that would attract you to the lofty speech or to the eloquence of what was being said. Uh, Lloyd-Jones, Martin Lloyd-Jones, my preaching here, has got a marvelous section in his book on preaching, Preaching and Preachers. If you aspire to preaching ministry, I couldn't commend that book to you more highly. And one of the things he talks about, illustrations and anecdotes and humor in preaching. And he says, what, should they be used? And he says, basically, if I remember correctly, his answer is, they should only be used as they serve to unfold the text. If there's humor that will unfold the text, use the humor. If there's an illustration that will unfold the text, use the illustration. But don't start with, oh, have I got a good illustration. Now I hope I can find a text that will fit it. And no, nobody's above that temptation. And so Paul is telling us that the focus was on the content, not the style. Now I want to just alert you to something. I'm walking through the ways that a man is to preach if he would know, to know the Spirit's power. And what I just said is counterintuitive. Sometimes the plainer and the clearer and the more mere the preaching is, the more the Spirit smiles and says, this man is not about bringing attention to himself. This man is about bringing attention to the Son of God, and I want to own it and bless it and empower it. Okay, so then the second thing we see about Paul's ministry was that it was marked by a singular focus. The kind of preaching ministry that strengthens churches is not about style, but it's about substance. And it's not about speaking about everything, but it's about speaking about one thing. Look at verse 2. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Now that is actually, honestly... Uh, a more confusing statement that we sometimes acknowledge. I mean, in one sense, it's pretty simple. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and His crucified. But it can sort of sound like the backwoods preacher is like, all I tell them about is Jesus. Like, that's all I talk about. I got, I got a one-string banjo, and that's all I play. But we have to understand that when the Apostle Paul said that all he knew among them was Jesus Christ Him crucified, it doesn't mean He didn't talk about getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. It doesn't mean He didn't talk about head coverings. It doesn't mean He didn't talk about lawsuits among Christians. It doesn't mean He didn't talk about government in Romans chapter 3. It doesn't mean He didn't talk about marriage in Ephesians chapter 5. The Apostle Paul spoke about everything, but he spoke about everything only as it related to one thing. Everything could be explicitly connected to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, Paul, tell me about marriage. What, what should we do in marriage? Husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church. Tell me about Christian giving, Paul. How, how should we give? Well, he who is rich became you poor for your sake so that you might become rich in him and you should give like that. Well, what about, what about uh, going to prostitutes, Paul? Don't you know that you're the temple of the Holy Spirit? He's preaching Christ the whole time. Everything he says is revolving around Christ. Why should I submit to government? Because they are ministers placed over you in God. Why should I use my spiritual gifts in humility? Because what do you have that you did not receive? He's, the whole time, he's pulsing from the center, Jesus Christ. And there should never be a sense in which a preacher says anything where you can't make the explicit connection to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what the Holy Spirit loves to anoint. As one person put it, the Spirit is a Christocentric Spirit. The Spirit loves to give a demonstration of the power when Christ is being preached. The Spirit shines the spotlight on Jesus. Not on men who use fancy words for their own glory. The Spirit will withdraw from that. Not on a man who's got an opinion on every subject and you go, whoa, what a brilliant guy. No. Someone who has devoted themselves to one topic, the Gospel of Jesus Christ, and sees everything as being shaped by that. Third, Paul was not only about substance, more than the style, and he was about one thing, not everything. But third, notice that Paul was weak, not strong. 
the kind of preaching that strengthens faith doesn't come from strong men, but weak men. Do you see that in the text? He says in verse 3, And I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. Now part of the reason I didn't get discouraged when I almost lost my voice at the start of the message and had to get water clumsily gotten for me because I forgot to bring it up myself. Not that you were clumsy, but I was clumsy not bringing it up here. Was because I know just how bad Paul's preaching was in some senses. Listen to what Paul says about his own preaching in Galatians chapter 4, verse 14. He says in Galatians 4, 14, you know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel for you at first. Hey, Paul, why are you here? I'm too sick to go anywhere else. <laughs> That's a good start. You know that it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first, and though my condition was a trial to you. Think about that. Now, now these words are serious. Paul's so sick that listening to him preach is a trial. 15-minute coughing fits. You've got to take a break. I don't know. He can't, can't read the text because his eyes are so bad. has to get someone else to read it for him. I mean, there is... Paul was not wearing $700 Nikes and a muscle shirt prancing around on stage showing people how awesome he was while he preached. That was not what was happening. He was a sick, beaten, uh, just... I mean, that body that he dragged around the Middle, the, the, the middle East, it was, it was a messed up, sick, tortured, mangled body. So much so that when you listen to him preach, he describes the experience of listening to him preach as a trial. Like, like, Paul's literally thinking to himself, well, God works all things together for good, including my trial-giving preaching. So when I start coughing, and think maybe I'll lose my voice, or this might be scratchy, or this is awkward, or this isn't smooth, there's no sense that God is limited by that. And in fact, that doesn't even get to the core of a preacher's weakness. Because beyond a preacher's physical weakness is, of course, the fact that we have no spiritual power at all. I have been preaching for over 20 years. And you know how I feel before every single sermon? Hopeless. Just hopeless apart from the grace of God. You just... How is this going to work? How is this going to come together? How is this going to land? If anything good happens, it's going to be a miracle. Charles Hodge wrote, of course his weakness was more than physical. The whole context shows he is referring to his state of mind. It was not in the consciousness of strength, self-confidence, and self-reliance that he appeared to them, but is oppressed with a sense of his weakness and insufficiency. He had to work to do. He had work to do that he felt he was entirely above his powers. If you want to know what preaching does, Alistair Begg talks about preachers needing to go to cemeteries and start preaching to the tombstones and waiting for a response. The only way there'll be a response is if there's a miracle. And the same is true of preaching. And if there is a miracle, because, or if your church does respond, it's because there's already been a miracle. And God has brought born-again people to listen to His Word. Okay, again, let's note the connection to the ministry of the Holy Spirit. What kind of work, what kind of preaching does the Spirit own? He owns the words of a simple man who's focused on substance over style. He owns the words of a man who's got one focus, not a million focuses. And he owns the words of a man who's weak and has fear and much trembling. And then, and here's where I want to focus this morning. This is where the Spirit makes Himself demonstrably seen. Do you see that in the passage? My speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, saying basically the same thing He said in verse 1 but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power 
of God. What kind of demonstration is Paul talking about? What's he talking about? Well, I would encourage you to either read church history or to beg your elders to do a or pastors to do a Bible study on church history, but what you find is that over and over and over where God has moved mightily, He's raised up preachers where you could see power coming through their words. George Whitfield described what came upon him when he preached as the thunder and the lightning. Now, many preachers in our day would have to describe what they preach as as the soft rain and the gray noise that will help you sleep. But Paul, but George Whitfield talks about the thunder and the lightning. And in, in former days, this was a major concern. Not simply did the preacher graduate from seminary, not simply did the preacher have clear concepts of doctrine, but did he have what sometimes been called an access of power? Does he have the unction? This is to be a real feature of our preaching. It is to be imbued with power from on high. Now, I was thinking about preaching this message and recognizing that many who I'm preaching to are not preachers, and what I could do is I could make you the worst members of every congregation you represent. No, it wasn't there. wasn't there. Uh-uh. Heard about it at that conference, and my preacher had not got it. And thank you. That's not my goal. If your preacher is not imbued with power, it may be as much your fault as his. Let me ask you this question. Who was to blame for the Corinthians? I follow Paul. I follow Paul. I follow Cephas. Who was to blame? Paul? No, he preached in a way that they wouldn't do that. It was them. It was their carnality. We often look at celebrity preacher culture and go, those celebrity preachers are so bad. Often those celebrity preachers are actually quite good. The carnality to divide among them often comes from us. If you recognize in your own preacher, or even me right now, a lack of the Spirit's power, it ought to result not in greater criticism, at least not for a long, long while, but in greater prayer. There's an old Dutch proverb that was said to congregations. Preachers would say to congregations, I'll preach you full, but you pray me full. Do you pray your preacher full? Do you have a ministry of prayer for the preaching of God's Word that there might be that thunder and that lightning? That there might be that access of power. That there might be more than just a transfer of knowledge. Our preaching can and should solicit such reactions from people that we know they are elect. What? Yeah, election ought to be seen by the way we preach. What do you mean, Ryan? How do you see election? You can't see election. That's God choosing before the foundation of the earth who would be saved. How do you see that? I'll tell you how you see that. You see that by how people respond to preaching. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 4, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you. We know you're elect. We know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you because our Gospel came to you not in, only in word, but also in power and the Holy Spirit with full conviction. When there are people to whom the Gospel comes forward with power and it creates full conviction that Jesus Christ is Lord and they lean on Him in faith, you're seeing the echoes of election worked out in time and space. You're seeing the choice of God demonstrated right there in their lives. It's amazing. Paul could speak to the Corinthians and say, do you remember the demonstration of the Spirit? Like, like there was something they could remember. It's like, hey, do you remember that time we did the youth camp? Hey, do you remember that time we had the potluck? Hey, do you remember that every time I preached to you there was a demonstration of the Spirit and of power? It was one of their collective memories that shaped their faith. Beloved, this was on John the Baptist. He was filled with the Spirit and Jerusalem was coming out to him. Jesus didn't utter those first words that we read in Mark chapter 1, verse 14 and 15 until the Spirit had come upon him like a dove. The early church was not ready to preach after three years with Jesus. But they were told to wait in Jerusalem until the Spirit comes upon you. 
You say, but Ryan, Pentecost happened in the past, and we're not Pentecostals. Well, John Murray, the great Reformed theologian, says, if Pentecostal is, Pentecost is not repeated, neither is it rescinded. This is the age of the Holy Spirit. We need to recognize, we need to seek, we need to ask God for something more than we are currently experiencing. We look at the time before us. Look at the moment in history that we have been chosen to live in. What a time it is. What, a t- what an impossible time we have been given to live in. And yet here we are with all kinds of facts. There's books on that uh, bookstall back there that would have made Christians and other generations jealous. They'd never even seen so many books. We we have knowledge. Even though Reformed churches tend to be small works, there actually is this knowledge out there. What's keeping things from going forward in power? From From a mighty movement that would press out into the hearts and minds of our neighbors and friends? It is this. There is so little of the Spirit among us. There is so little of His power in preaching. And we don't have the time to pray for it. And we're so worried about not being charismatics that we don't want to get too close to anything wild. But I'm telling you, every time the Gospel has moved forward in power, it's been because God has put a supernatural boldness, a supernatural clarity, a supernatural demonstration on preachers. And that preachers has made faith in the people of God. Let me tell you some of the ways this will look like if you see it. First of all, it will mean a marvelous boldness in the preaching. There will be a marvelous boldness in the preaching. Paul prayed in Ephesians 6, pray that I might have boldness. And when when you see Spirit-empowered preaching, what you see is a fearless man willing to say whatever the Word says no matter what's happening around him in his day. The other thing that happens when there's Spirit-empowered preaching is that there is a marvelous illumination. That is, the the Word takes on a certain light, a certain certain heat, a certain certain warmth comes upon the preacher. Al Martin speaks of how sometimes in the preaching, the truth that came to the preacher with 100 watts of power in the study comes with 1,000 watts in the pulpit. The heat that came with 100 BTUs in the study comes with 1,000 BTUs in the pulpit. And you know, Al Martin knew something about this. I don't know if you're familiar with Al Martin's ministry, but... uh, he preached, I think it was in the 80s and 90s, at a family conference in the American South. And as he's preaching, it must have been in the 90s or 2000s because, because of the technology I'm about to tell you about, but there was motion sensors where he was speaking. The lights were controlled by motion sensors. And as he preached, the congregation got to such a stillness, 600 people or so got to such a stillness, that the lights went out because they hadn't detected any motion for so long. And when they went out, they didn't go back on when everyone began to shuffle. But everyone stayed silent and still because the power of God was so evident and present in the preaching. I told this story just a couple months ago to a congregation in Mebane, North Carolina. And when I was done, people came up to me and they said, we were there. We were at that meeting. We were there. The one guy said, I was the guy looking for the light switch when it happened. But the lights went off and they didn't come back on. We know almost nothing of this. There were times after Lloyd-Jones preached where people wouldn't move for 15 minutes. There were times when Jonathan Edwards preached when people were wailing in the, in the pews. Now, does God work on a simple Sunday when we don't see anything of that kind happen? Absolutely He does. We don't want to despise the day of small things. But we need to be aware that the preaching is to be like a burning bush where the man is on fire and yet not consumed. And when you see that present, the result is you do not say, man, I love Paul Washer. Or man, I love John Piper. Or man, I love R.C. Sproul. You say, isn't God good? Isn't God gracious? Isn't God trustworthy? When you sense that kind of motion happening in your soul, whether the preacher's as quiet as a mouse or he's yelling like a lion, you are witnessing a demonstration of the Spirit and of power and your soul begins to lean into God. Lloyd-Jones tells the story of a wealth preacher 
a Welsh preacher uh, who wasn't much of a preacher to listen to. He wasn't, wasn't a man of extraordinary gifts. But this particular man tells the story of waking up one day. David Morgan was his name. Waking up one day and he just realized that God had made him a lion. This very average, not particularly gifted preacher was filled with the Holy Spirit and for five years in Wales, he began to minister with the strength and power of a lion. Oh, that God would make average men like me and you into men who are filled with the Holy Spirit. Well, I'm going to close by telling you a story of how God taught this lesson to my grandfather-in-law, my wife's grandfather. Uh, my wife's grandfather was an evangelical, a free Methodist minister, a gospel-loving man. He was a diesel mechanic until uh, he was 40 years old. He ministered in the uh, area around Hamilton, Niagara Falls, the Niagara region of southern Ontario. And uh, this particular story is about the first two sermons he ever preached. Uh, he, was, um, <clears throat> he was a member of a church in Niagara Falls, and the uh, preacher of that church, the normal preacher of that church, was away at the denominational meetings. And like you get in that Niagara region, you can get five, six, seven, eight feet of snow in a heartbeat. And Wilbur Teal, my wife's grandfather, recognized that the snow had come down the night before and the preacher wasn't going to make it back to the service. And he said, oh, I know our preacher too. He'll wait till the very last minute to call because he's so eager to get back. He'll, he'll want the roads to open. He'll wait till the very last minute. And then he'll call the very last minute and they'll ask me to preach. So he went to church and he got to church and sure enough, the phone call came in. The preacher's not going to make it. The roads are closed. Wilbur Teal, you're the leading layman. Will you preach? Wilbur Teal thought to himself, I have a little uh, sermon outline in my Bible that I wrote out a few months ago or years ago, and I'll preach that, and no one will know I had the outline, and they'll all think that was incredible. And so he had his little outline, and he said he got into the pulpit, he prayed a little perfunctory prayer, you know, asking for God's help, and then he opened up his outline, he thought, I'm really going to give him what for, and God dismantled his mind, and he couldn't say anything. His words were all taken away. In the mercy of God, the Holy Spirit said, I'm not using that. And he just, in that free Methodist context, just had to give the congregation over to the church and say, let's turn this into a prayer meeting. And so then they had a prayer meeting. Well, Wilbur Teal went home uh, that afternoon, and he was mad. He was mad. He said to his wife, if God had wanted me to be a preacher, God would have given me his power, God would have given me his strength, God would have given me his help, I will never preach again. Well, later that day, the evening service is approaching. And as the evening service is approaching, Wilbur Teal decides, I know exactly what's going to happen. That preacher's going to wait till the last minute to see if those roads are open. Then when they're not open, they're going to call me at the last minute and ask me to preach. So he determined that he would not go to the Sunday evening service until it was extremely late. So his wife's like, Wilbur, Wilbur, we have to go to church. We have to go to church. We have to go to church. Wilbur's like, I'm not going. And he waited till a full half hour into the service before he finally pulled up to church. And when he opened his door to go to church, he didn't hear singing. He's like, oh, they've waited for me. And he went in there, and sure enough, the pastor had called and said, I want Wilbur to preach. And all the leading men of the church walked up to Wilbur and said, you need to preach, you need to preach. He's like, I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it. Have Gordy preach. Have Warren preach. Have someone else preach. I'm not doing it. And he said, no, no, we, we really believe the Lord wants you to preach. And so he said, fine. And he went downstairs, and in brokenness, he opened up his Bible he said, Lord, just give me something to give 
to this people and he said, I heard the sweet Holy Spirit said, preach Jesus. And he said he walked back upstairs. He took the pulpit after the songs. And he opened to Luke chapter 2 and he says, I preached about that sweet baby. I preached about how he came, born of a virgin. I preached about how he died on the cross and his dear love for sinners. And it's his testimony that every unbeliever in the place was saved that day. That God so anointed him with power. That God moved in such marvelous power that people were gripped and in that context came forward and were pouring out their hearts to God for his marvelous work in the preaching. Now, the interesting, he writes, the lesson I took from that was not don't prepare. He's careful to mention this. I've always carefully prepared my sermons, he said. But I took from that that I can never rely on the preparation. But I must always rely on the Holy Spirit of God. Oh, wouldn't such preaching change us? Shouldn't we seek it? Shouldn't we invest to cultivate men to do it? Shouldn't we ask God to pour out His Spirit every Sunday morning, every Sunday night, whenever the preach word is open? Shouldn't we ask God, oh God, let this weak man preach one thing in power. And then what will we do? We will walk away not boasting in the wisdom of man, but in the power of God. Our faith will rest there. Let's pray. Father, we pray for You to revive Your church and Your preachers. I pray that every preacher here would resolve to be simple and plain, to be a servant, to be Christ-centered, to be exclusively focused on Christ, to embrace their weakness and to plead with You. pray for every church member here who listens to preaching that they would primarily gather themselves to pray for their pastors. Pray for the preaching. Plead with you through the week, Saturday night, Sunday morning, before and after and during the preaching. That there would be a, a prayer on our lips. Lord, pour out Your Spirit that we might not trust men, but God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.